Hello and welcome to Maddox on the Mic. This podcast is the second of two special podcasts for Breast Cancer Awareness Month brought to you by Maddox Women. We'll be talking breast cancer, mental health and the importance of the gut biome. My name is Alicia Aubrey. I'm a partner in the Maddox Sydney property team and I'm also the co-chair of Maddox Women, our employee resource group, which is focused on the professional development of female partners and staff and furthering gender equity at the firm. My pronouns are she and her. I'm joined today by Professor Felice Jacker, Director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University and world expert in the field of nutritional psychiatry and gut health, who will be sharing her breast cancer journey with us, as well as telling us about her research and the Food and Mood Centre. Before we start our conversation today, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise the continuing deep connection to lands, waters and community. I'm recording today on the land of the Wangal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all First Nations people listening to this podcast. Professor Jacker, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. I'd like to start by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. So um, my name's Felice Jacker. I am 56 years old. I'm um, a medical researcher. I've been married for 35 odd years. I have two adult daughters. One's 24, one's 27. And I um, live and work on the on Wadawarrung lands uh, of the Kulin Nation. And my pronouns are she and her uh, also. My job is really, really busy and really, really rewarding. So I've, uh, I, I guess you would say, and it sounds a bit boasty, but um, it's probably accurate to say I've sort of founded and led a new field of psychiatry research and increasingly psychiatry practice called nutritional psychiatry, which aims to understand and then apply the knowledge regarding how what we eat every day influences our mental and brain health. So I would normally uh, be travelling all the time and, of course, the last 18 months or so, I haven't done that. But actually, in a, in a funny way, given what happened with breast cancer treatment, COVID has been kind to me in that it, it coincided exactly with the end of my treatment and gave me a breather to to recover, which has been quite a journey yeah amazing and and so you've had breast cancer twice how did you discover the cancer the first time so 2016 I'd you know put off um, my breast screen the the regular breast screen that you are invited to attend when you turn 50 and I'd just been too busy and traveling and of course I wouldn't have cancer why would I and so I'd put it off for 12 months and then I thought gee I should finally go and do that so I it was discovered through the routine mammogram and of course I was as shocked as anyone is when they when they discover this at the time I had two uh, three very tiny tumors very deeply buried so I wouldn't have felt it on a normal palpation but my whole left breast was absolutely riddled with the precancerous changes the DCIS so I of course in the general panic that always ensures uh, ensues and so my background and undergrad and training is in psychology and statistics I'm certainly not in biology and 
anatomy and cancer research. So I was probably as clueless as anyone else when I was diagnosed. And with the huge panic that comes with a first um, diagnosis of cancer, uh, I was referred to see a, a male surgeon in my area. We have great surgeons in the Geelong area. And of course, I'm attached to the hospital here. So that was quite handy. And he recommended that I have a full mastectomy and a reconstruction at the same time using the lat dorsi muscle from my back. And he talked quite a lot about how lovely it would look and how it would match my other one and how they would preserve the skin on my breast and the nipple. And then he showed me lots of photos of women with lovely breasts looking quite natural. Of course, at that time, I mean, I really was only interested in not dying. Mm. <laughs> my memory of that time, I don't. I think it's pretty accurate. I had um, a close friend come with me to the appointments in case I miss anything. Neither of us remember him mentioning any, I guess, potential risks uh, with the procedure that I was choosing other than that which would normally accompany um, surgery. He said I, I wouldn't need, it was very unlikely that I would need any further treatment after the mastectomy and reconstruction uh, because of the early stage of the tumours, but of course they would check the lymph nodes. So I had that surgery, I had the mastectomy and the full reconstruction, which was a hell of a, a thing in itself. I was under for about eight and a half hours. I lost a lot of blood. I woke up and had to have blood transfusions. I was very sick. But, you know, I recovered, as you do, um, a lot of pain and discomfort, but that's what you would expect with such major surgery. And then I, you know, I got on with my life. I had no um, cells in my lymph nodes, so I was given the, the all clear to go and carry on. I didn't need any more scans, I was told, because you can't get cancer in a reconstructed breast. And uh, so I, you know, after a period of time, I got back to work, started up again my very busy schedule. And my when I look back on what I achieved, actually, in the 12 months after my breast cancer surgery, I kind of shudder because it was really excessive. But I I set up the Food and Mood Centre, which at the time it was just myself and one or two of my PhD students. It's now, what's that, four years later, uh, close to 40 people now. So it's grown very rapidly. I also held a major international conference in London because I'm the president, founder and president of the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research. This was a major conference. People came from all over the world. The opening session, Michael Mosley opened it with me. You know, it really was fairly full-on time after that first diagnosis, but also very, very rewarding. Yeah, amazing. And, and your work there at the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin Uni is focused on the link between nutrition the gut biome and mental health. Undergoing cancer treatment obviously takes a lot of physical but also mental resilience. Were you able to apply your work in a way that was helpful to you during your cancer treatment? Oh, look, yes and no. I mean, obviously my basic starting point is that diet and nutrition are incredibly important to health um, in general, every aspect of your health and particularly your immune system, which of course is central to cancer as well as it is to just about every other chronic disease. At the time though, we were really only just starting to get our head around the gut microbiota and, and how that works. So there's many ways in which diet influences mental and brain health and all of the different pathways seem to have an underlying link to the, the microbiota and the bacteria that live in our gut and all its very large number of processes, but we really didn't know much about it at the time. So it wasn't a focus for me. What I didn't do was 
take the cancer seriously enough and recognise how much stress, excessive travel and excessive alcohol consumption to deal with the stress was an issue for me and for, you know, cancer risk. So whilst there's always a lot of things, you know, in theory, but you don't always put them into practice. And I think that's human nature and um, I'm as guilty of it as anyone else. So while I would eat pretty well, sleep and do lots of exercise, I was overworking, travelling too often and drinking too much, particularly nice red wine. (laughs) (laughs) So the gut microbiome and the importance of that came later and indeed the role of the gut and its importance to cancer outcomes is only just starting to be understood. Amazing. And so you said previously that uh, your surgeon said that there was very little, if no, no risk of the cancer coming back after a reconstruction. Um, and yet for those who were listening carefully in the introduction, you've had two um, bouts of breast cancer. How long after finishing treatment following your first breast cancer diagnosis and the reconstruction, did you discover that you had breast cancer again? And how did you find that cancer? Mm. So it was about three years later. And of course, when you've had cancer, you go back for regular checkups. For me, not with an oncologist for memory, because um, it was so early stage that I was never treated by an oncologist other than initial appointment from memory anyway, but um, certainly with the surgeons. I'd go back to be checked. And, you know, when they did the reconstruction, they also used an implant in addition to the lat dorsi muscle in my back. And it had always been a little bit irritable. It was just never comfortable. I never enjoyed it. It would just, it was almost like an itchy, sore thing. And so um, before I headed off to London for this big, important conference, I had my checkup with the surgeon, with a different surgeon. It was a registrar. And they gave me a very, very thorough palpation lying on my back, uh, as they do, and gave me the all clear. And I said, you know what, I'm just, there's something that's just, I've just got a feeling something's not quite right. I don't want, know what it is, but I've never felt that it was a very comfortable thing. And I just wonder if there was a bit of fluid or something under the implant. So he said, look, we'll book you in for an ultrasound when you get back. So I got off the plane, um, you know, three or so weeks later on top of the world. And within a few days, I had my appointment to go and have this ultrasound. And I remember lying there with the ultrasound and the the person doing the ultrasound was quite preoccupied and seemed to be focusing on this little area. So I just thought, oh, well, it must be the little pocket of fluid that I thought might have happened. And then he called his colleague in and she came in. And then I noticed that they, this is in retrospect, that they were trying to make light conversation and kind of distract me while they measured something uh, with great concentration. And anyway, I thought nothing of it because I was just so busy and no one had ever suggested to me that it was possible that I could have regrown a cancer in my reconstructed breast. I went home that day and I had meeting after meeting and I remember I was on a supervision with one of my postdocs and I got several missed calls from a no ID number, which anyone who's been through the hospital system knows that those calls can sometimes freak you out because they often are from the hospital. But I was just so busy, I'd miss them. And so the the final one I picked up um, while I was still on the call to my postdoc and it was a very frantic sounding receptionist saying, oh, I've been trying to get onto you. We've got to book you in for your biopsy. And I said, what? What biopsy? What are you talking about? Oh, oh. Hasn't the surgeon called you? No. Why would the surgeon call me? Oh, 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 I think you better talk to the surgeon. And then couldn't get off the phone fast enough. And I thought, oh, this is weird. And within a couple of minutes, the surgeon had called me. 
And he sounded so flustered and so, I guess, almost apologetic. And he said, look, look, we've, we've found something. We've found something. It's highly unusual. It's very unusual. And I said, what? And he said, well, it, it, it might be a cancer. And I said, but I didn't think I could get cancer in a reconstructed breast. That's what the woman at Breast Screen told me. Oh, well, very occasionally people will, um, if you use the skin, your own skin and your own nipple, you can have cells left, cancer cells left in the skin and it's regrown. Well, we don't know this for sure. We don't know this for sure. And I thought, ah, what else could it be? So anyway, I got off the phone to him after booking the biopsy and I called my own doctor straight away and she said, yeah, it's got to be cancer. There's nothing else it could be. So that's when it really started because then it was more serious. It had regrown. It was more aggressive. And that's when I decided to have um, radical surgery. Mm, okay. So, so radical surgery. So you chose to have a double mastectomy mm-hmm. um, and to not have a reconstruction at the same time the second mm-hmm. time round. Can you talk to me a little bit about your decision making around that? Yeah. So I think many people would know that when you're in your mid-50s and you've had your children and everything else, you're not, well, for me anyway, you know, my appearance and being young and sexy in a bathing costume was not my first priority. I actually had a lot of anger, I think, when I found out what had happened because I'd been reassured that this was great and I wouldn't need any more treatment. It was never explained to me that this was a risk that came with a skin-sparing mastectomy and reconstruction. And, of course, my surgeon had given me the all-clear, even though it turned out I had a two-centimetre tumour very close to the surface. I think because it was regrowing in muscle tissue rather than in breast tissue, it was harder to detect. But needless to say, if I hadn't had my own instincts and acted on them, it would not have been found. As it was, I had to have all of my lymph nodes removed because they, they couldn't get a good reading of the sentinel nodes and I had to have chemotherapy and this was preventive. They said this is just in case you've got any cells that have escaped. Happily my lymph nodes were clear but the chemotherapy was so utterly awful and I know it's had a major, major, major impact on my health. I just had to have those four treatments of the red devil but um, I say just because it it really is quite life-changing and I had dense dosing because I was quite strong and healthy. They gave it to me every two weeks instead of every three weeks and then of course I had to have a full course of radiation therapy. I spoke to my, I had a different surgeon, a female surgeon this time and I said immediately to her, I want you to take both my breasts and she was kind of shocked and I think you know concerned that I was making a terrible mistake and I said look I've, I've thought about this there is just no doubt in my mind that I do not want to live with the threat of another breast cancer to me my breasts now feel like they're out to kill me they feel like little cancer bombs I don't want to have that concern and anxiety anymore And I want it to be a clean closure. That means no bits of skin left over. I want it to be nice, neat and clean. So she gave me all the information and then she said, you sound like you're pretty sure. And I said, I'm very sure. And she said, look, I'll give you a few days to think about it. So I did and then I came back and I said, no, I'm still very sure. And so when I had the double mastectomy, I had them completely removed and a very flat closure so that I didn't have excess skin, which would be useful if I did want to have um, a reconstruction. Now, what is it, 18 months, getting on towards two years since I had the initial surgery. I am speaking to a plastic surgeon in a couple of weeks who I'm not eligible for a Dieppe flap reconstruction when they take the stomach tissue because 
I cough so much because of the lung damage I got through chemotherapy that I got a hernia and that damaged the little valve that they need to do the Dieppe flap reconstruction. And I wouldn't do that anyway. That's another very major piece of surgery. I can't obviously have a lap dorsi reconstruction because I've only got one left. <laughs> and again, I wouldn't do that again because it was awful. But I am going to speak to them about just putting some very small implants in under the muscle with no other treatment. If I deem that it's going to be too high risk in terms of infections, lots of trips to surgery, no, because if I can mm. never have breasts again, I'm happy about that. I can live with that. Could If I could actually get, you know, a couple of small implants in without too many dramas, then that would be more convenient. Yeah. So having been through the journey you have with breast cancer and, and with the, the treatment and the issues with surgery that you've had, this Breast Cancer Awareness Month, what would your message be to all women? I think really take your time to make a decision about the surgery and reconstruction options because I wasn't given any more options. The surgeon said, I'm going to do this. It's going to be wonderful. You're going to be very happy with it. He didn't explain to me what the risks were. He didn't give me another option. And one option would have obviously been to have a recon a mastectomy and then think about a reconstruction further down the track. And if you can get a second opinion, and it's very difficult when you're in that panic state, you think you're about to die any moment if you don't get this thing out of you and off your chest. But actually, you've got a bit of time. And I would suggest that you take that time because unfortunately, and that's a terrible generalisation that I hate to make, but I think there are a lot of male surgeons out there who are more concerned with making a beautiful breast because they genuinely think that every woman cares about that above everything else without recognising that for a lot of women, that's a secondary consideration. It's a, a decision made without, you don't have the full information at your fingertips and it's a tricky one, but I think that that would be my message to, to women. Thank you because so much. Yeah, if, I had, if I'd had yeah. that information, I wouldn't have done what I did and I wouldn't have ended up having to have chemotherapy, lose both my breasts, lose my hair and really affect my long-term health. Absolutely. That's an important message. Thank you so much, Professor Felice Jacker, for generously and openly sharing your personal story today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you for tuning in. If you're interested in knowing more about Professor Jacker's work at the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University, she's written two books which I encourage you to go to your favourite online bookstore to buy. Brain Changer, Good Mental Health Diet and one for the whole family, There's a Zoo in My Poo. And if you liked this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.